You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. Notice that this episode of Trouble with the Truth is longer than usual, but it's well worth your time. Because today you're going to get the full picture of what's been happening in Myanmar over the past few months. On 1st of February this year, military seized power from the democratically elected government led by Aung San Suu Kyi. Since then, the country has been swept by mass protests to which the military responded with brutal force. My guest this week is Mang Zarni, an academic, activist, and the founder and coordinator of multiple human rights campaign groups, including the Free Rohingya Coalition. And despite the fact that some of what we discussed was quite gruesome, it was equally inspiring and hopeful. I started off by asking him about how the coup unraveled and what's happening in Myanmar right now. Well, on February first, uh, you know that will be <clears throat> January thirty-first. Uh, you know, late evening in UK, and the military staged a, a coup against a democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi and the you know the party named the National League for Democracy. They they were re-elected. You know, this is the second time that they were given overwhelming popular mandate. So that's three months ago. And um, what is happening is essentially a textbook example of society-wide, nationwide revolution, I would use the word. It it is really a, a revolution simply because the entire society that used to be divided along ethnic and religious lines Right. We are a country of 54 million, about uh, two dozen major ethnic groups. Uh, the main ethnic group is named uh, Burmese or uh, Burmans, or Burma as we call ourselves. You know, that's where the country's name Burma or now Myanmar comes from. Mm-hmm. So th- th- we are a Buddhist majority, but we also, you know, that we... The, the majority Burmese ethnic group make up about 65 to 70% of the popu- total population. The rest of them are national minorities you know, who have their own distinct histories and um, linguistic um, traditions, uh, cultural customs and whatnot. In the last um, 70 years or so, since the end of Second World War, when we became independent from Britain. We were a British colony for 120 years, and around 1948, we regained our independence. But since then, the Second World War is set to have never ended in Burma. So uh, the, the, the reason that civil war of different intensities in different parts of the region continues on for over 70 years is because the, the we the uh, Buddhist and uh, uh, Burmese majority, particularly military leaders and politicians, we broke the promise of ethnic equality. You know, because when you put together different ethnic nations 
into a modern political state after the Second World War. There are certain principles that were, were to serve as the glue for different ethnic communities who could be independent and sovereign on their own. You know, these smaller, numerically smaller minorities were uh, offered um, the principles of ethnic equality and self-determination. It wasn't human rights in 1945, 48. And human rights was not a popular discourse. But what was popular discourse then uh, for the political classes was the right to self-determine their own future. And so in the last three months, something extraordinary and unprecedented happened because the military had been in power since 1962 in different guises. And, uh, you know, what we have had in the last uh, 15 years since, uh, more like uh, 12 years uh, since the country opened up to uh, foreign investment, uh, you know, a degree of political opening, uh, was really a military-controlled democratic process. So, So it's... It's a semi or quasi democratic transition with Aung San Suu Kyi as the facade. Uh, you know that was something that Western powers could live with. And as uh, we know, Suu- she, as we know, sorry, she couldn't even run for president because in a, there was a special clause in the constitution that said if her children are dual nationals, she can't run for president. So there was a special position that was created for her. Yes, that's correct. And uh, the, the, you know, the military drafted the constitution uh, with, the, with the view towards keeping itself above the law, above the society. So, so the, you know, the constitution, that, the constitutional clause you refer to, the military, you know, often say this is something or this was something the original, um, you know, co-founders of the uh, new nation state of Burma had in mind. You know, it, it, you know, it obviously because it's constitution, she was not named, you know, there. But you know, most people understand that this is, uh, the, you know, uh, meant to prevent her from ever becoming the head of state. And so, you know, it, not just the children, anyone in the immediate family is entitled to uh, privileges and rights of uh, another. A sovereign state, you know, like UK, because her children are British, uh, and also her ex, uh, you know, her late husband was also British as well, and so, so that clause prevented her from assuming the uh, the highest office in the land, and so one of her legal advisors, a, a Muslim lawyer and activist by the name of Kony, uh, found a loophole in the constitution. Uh, you know, adopted by the military uh, for the whole country uh, as a framework for uh, moving forward. Uh, He created this position called um, a state counselor, right? So that is understood to be above the nominal constitutional president. So she always picks or picked in the last, um, you know, two elections, two loyalists uh, to be her, what we jokingly call yo-yo president, puppets, right? Everybody knows that she runs the uh, the civilian side of the state and the military controls the security sector. 
So what happened with the coup that you mentioned was that the military junta um, used the, uh, you know, some irregularities, you know, like uh, anywhere in the world, everywhere in the world, you know, even that the most developed democratic um, states with the functioning democracies and strong institutions uh, always have like uh, this, uh, you know, um, the issue of election fraud. It's just, uh, you know, but there were international observers in the country, national observers, local people observe, and, and more or less the election was deemed to be free and fair, uh, despite all the accusations of election fraud. And then also, I think the, the only problem that I personally found difficult was that uh, several ethnic minority areas where the uh, the fightings were going on, the uh, the elections were not held, and so there were certain you know a, 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 a certain percentage of uh, um, minority populations that were not allowed to exercise their democratic rights, which is like you know choose their own um, electoral representatives. So that was one major uh, one significant flaw, but none of these things amount to you know uh, the any real justification for overturning the popular will which is the you know the election uh, re-election of uh, the national league for democracy but what really uh, you know triggered the coup were two things one was personal the head of the um, um, burmese armed forces icc is very likely to issue arrest warrant in the next you know two to three years maximum yeah, uh, but if, you know the same way uh, the Sudan president, you know, El uh, um, Omar El Bashir, was uh, you know uh, the issued arrest warrant, and Interpol wanted to arrest him, but he was a sitting president, so they could never touch him until he was deposed uh, by his own uh, the junior officers within the uh, the Sudanese military. Now he's you know, he will be transferred to ICC or, or there will be some kind of tribunal, uh, uh, you know, a criminal tribunal against this Sudanese ex-president for the uh, genocide in Darfur, yeah? And so the, the, the Burmese military leader is in a similar predicament and he's about to retire in July this year. And the, in order for him to feel safe, he needed to have some kind of state protection and for that to happen he needs to retain either the commander-in-chief position or he needs to grab the uh, presidency yeah and 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 neither is possible he already extended his own um you know re- uh, he postponed his retirement at the age of 60 uh, generals are supposed to retire he extended it by five years and now his retirement is coming up in july Right. And also Suchi and Aung Suchi and him have extremely bad chemistry and they don't get on at all. And so, the, you know, the, the presidency requires Suchi's endorsement because Suchi's party won the overwhelming uh, majority votes. And so that's personal. But the other one is, you know, in the last five years, uh, despite all the... Um, Accuse, uh, you know, the, the um, justified criticisms of Aung San Suu Kyi uh, not really promoting or making human rights the centerpiece of her government. Uh, you know, for, for someone 
that was so well known around the world as a defender of human rights and democratization and liberalism for Suji to have failed to make a human rights a major component of her uh, policies um, you know, when she was in power for five years. Uh, that that was the due criticism, and I, I, you know, I was one of the people that criticized her leadership for this failure. However, uh, her, the, to her credit, Aung San Suu Kyi's um, party had been government had been able to essentially, you know, reduce or chip uh, chip away the um, you know fifty years of monop monopoly grip over state institutions uh, by the Burmese military, in particular, uh, the uh, non-security line ministries, like, you know, finance, uh, development, you know, labor, that kind of thing, yeah? And then so the military as an institution feels that its institutional interest that it took for granted for half a century have been threatened by this slow process of even limited democratization under uh, the civilian leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi and her party. So these two combinations were enough for the, uh, the commander-in-chief to launch the coup. And the coup has proven to be universally unpopular and has been opposed by communities that were historically divided, as I said, along ethnic and religious lines. And so what the silver lining in all of this is that the a new type of society begins to gel, you know, using the common uh, sentiment that uh, this military is bringing the society back to the 1960s where the military was the um, the you know the the brazen uh, dictator committing all kinds of crimes in international law books. So that is why we are seeing three months into the military coup, uh, the 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 entire society uh, are resisting against this coup, and uh, they are they have crippled the people. Uh, who in cities and towns and villages, uh, the majority Buddhist and others, uh, are resisting the military coup, uh, you know, through peaceful means, but in ethnic minority areas where the war has been going on for the last 70 years, different ethnic groups begin to cooperate in, uh, you know, like launching military strikes against, um, uh, you know, the, the militaries. Uh, outpost and the morale of the uh, Burmese armed forces must be uh, like what uh, the Soviet troops are in Afghanistan in the you know 80s. The, they're you know armed to teeth. Uh, however, the morale is extremely low in some places. Uh, you know the the, the 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 central national government troops would just abandon you know fighting after one or two hours. That's what I found so fascinating, just these examples of uh, uh, military officers joining in with protesters. And I think it's often very inflated, these kind of news, because obviously, you know, most of them are still oppressing their own people. But 
I think uh, this is always a crucial moment in every revolution is when the military starts to crack. I, I think, this, you know, so far, uh, the, the, uh, the military that staged the coup, the leaders, they have not been able to get a functional state up and running. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the pioneering century revolutionaries in, in the current uprising is healthcare workers, you know, doctors and nurses in the middle of pandemic. Yeah. They decided that the military is far more lethal to the society than the virus itself. That's a popular discourse. You know, when you, when you ask people, there is a pandemic going on, are you not afraid of like, you know, dying and spreading this? It's like, no, no, no. We have a virus that is far more destructive and devastating and pose the existential threat to all peoples and communities across the country. Therefore, we must fight back. You know, that's why, the, the, you know, if you if you glance at um, you know the wire news uh, reports and others, CNN and other uh, major outlets, you will see young men and women, you know, in their post-teens, early twenties. Yeah, uh, they call themselves Generation Z or Generation Z, and they are taking up arms. Yeah, because uh, we have about two dozen armed ethnic organizations. Who, that control different regions of the country. So uh, instead of being, uh, you know, abducted by the security troops, tortured or sexually assaulted in detention, or simply disappeared, yeah, uh, the, the the you know there are over four thousand uh, detainees, and 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 hundreds of them, nobody know where they are held, and you know, women. Uh, young women are uh, reportedly sexually assaulted in detention, and uh, this kind of thing happened, uh, you know, or this kind of, uh, you know, the use of rape as a tool for political subjugation has been going on um, in ethnic minority regions. You know, minority women have been subjected to this kind of, of sexual assault with impunity by the troops, right, uh, for decades. But this is the first time that Burmese Buddhist troops uh, are uh, committing uh, you know, sexual violence against even their own women because they, they view the society as the enemy. And, and, and on, on the people's part, uh, that we, you know, we return the favor in kind. And so we do not look at uh, the national armed forces, uh, you know, that have been in existence for 70 plus years uh, as an instrument of national liberation against the British rule as, um, as our own national army, because, you know, the national armed forces do not kill their own people. Yeah, and they may go and invade other countries and do bad things to other uh, the societies, but not not their own communities and people. And then so we have an extraordinary situation where over a short span of three months, the society decided it is not simply, you know, a few bad apples who are in charge of this armed forces. The armed forces itself 
is the major instrument of repression. So therefore, people are calling for and working towards, you know, lo and behold, uh, to, to dismantle this organization and while, uh, you know, urging other ethnic, you know, non-Burmese minority uh, arm organizations to form a new federal army as an alternative, that, uh, you know, so that, you know, the rank and files with extremely low morales can cross over the line and defect uh, to the democratic revolutionary side. So that is what is happening. No functioning state, no functioning economy, bank workers, you know, like, you know, like your office workers, you don't look at bank staff as potential revolutionaries. They, you know, they handle money. Uh, transactions and otherwise, but they are not going to work. You know, there are no trains in Burma running, yeah, because transport workers and others want to cr make sure that the military junta does not have an effective administration. Basically, it seems like it's a nationwide strike. Yeah, it's a combination of peaceful general strike by all sectors and also joined by private sector. You know, there are the military control. It's, there's another like dimension to the military as well. Like you're probably like the Russian mafia and, you know, the kind of state Putin runs. You know, before it was under Yeltsin, it was oligarchs, right? And now uh, the um, uh, uh, under, uh, under Putin, it was like, uh, you know, uh, the criminal gang with massive control over the economy, right? So we have a similar situation where the economy controls a, a vast segment of Burmese uh, uh, economy, mostly natural gas, oil, uh, and natural resource extractive sector. You know, you, I mean, you can find a parallel with the Russian state. You know, it doesn't produce anything. It just extracts the resources and use the revenues to enrich the guys at the top and the cronies and, uh, you know, beef up the security apparatus, uh, you know, to beat up and, and crush the opposition. That's what's happening in Burma. Except that in Burma, uh, you know, unlike Mr. Putin and, uh, you know, like, uh, people like uh, Xi Jinping in China, the Burmese ethnic majority no longer support this armed forces. You know, if you look into the, the process of uh, balkanization in Yugoslavia, you know, there are six republics uh, that, uh, you know, went their own way. The Yugoslavian army uh, the, the, was controlled by ethnic Serbs that went on to commit, um, you know, uh, or participated in or supported uh, you know, the genocide of Bosniaks and Muslim Bosnian, Bosnians across the, uh, across the Serbian neighbors, uh, the, the borders. And so, but we have a situation where the formerly national armed forces known as Tamadol or feudal or royal armed forces no longer enjoys even, you know, ethnic nationalist support from the majority. I mean, what's so extraordinary is that the, the, the majority Buddhist and Burmese now look to other minorities as their 
essentially supporters and saviors and you know rejecting the Burmese and their own national armed forces that are doing all the killings and abduction and you know raping as terrorists. So I mean this is extraordinary. I mean you, this is something no one ever expected. Yeah. And the entire society, you know, resorting to the uh, the secular equivalent of excommunication yeah? and then uh, you know street vendors would sh close their shops when they see soldiers you know out of fear and equally because they don't want to do business with soldiers they would not even sell drinking water bottles to the soldiers yeah that level of revulsion and uh, you know, extraordinarily, never was there a time in the recorded history of our country the society refused to celebrate New Year. We just had a New Year two weeks ago. You know, uh, you know, the, uh, three consecutive days, people would pour water on each other. There'll be dances at night and festivals and music. When entire cities and towns were turned into ghost towns by townspeople because they do not want to celebrate New Year's while this revolution is going on and while all the killings going on. And so every single you know, sector, every segment is using everything. Uh, the online protests, culture is turned into venues for resistance, right? Uh, direct protests on the streets, uh, you know, bombing, you know, begin people, some people who train in demolition and explosive begin to attack military installations, right? And uh, um, the doctors and nurses and teachers refusing to go back to work. And so this is extraordinary. That's why I said this is a textbook example of what a revolution looks like. such an incredible picture of what's happening in Myanmar at the moment. I think nothing else that I've read so far can be compared to your analysis. It's just, I, I, I really can just see it all in my head. I also wanted to talk about press freedom and how much it suffered, because obviously this is one of the first tools that any military dictatorship use is censorship. There's been arrests of journalists, several um, TV networks have been shut down, uh, the internet has been slowed down, there's a um, social media blackout, etc, etc. Are people struggling to get information and how are they finding the ways around uh, this, these social media blackouts? Well, a, a couple of things. One is, you know, the, the you have to remember this is the military that spearheaded the genocidal campaign against Rohingya Muslim people, right? Uh, only about four years ago, yeah. and uh, tragically and painfully, uh, the civilian democratic government of Aung San Suu Kyi went along with that, and Suu Kyi went to the International Court of Justice in the Hague. 
defending the indefensible. That was world headline news, right? A Nobel Peace Prize winner defending the genocide. And yeah, they're, they're saying that this was a, uh, the defense of the state against a Muslim terrorist, that kind of like, you know, racist language you use. And so the, the, the military, you know, used the social media platform, particularly Facebook. The Burmese people did not use uh, Twitter until recently when Facebook was blocked by the military uh, censors. They knew how powerful Facebook could be, right? If it's a double-edged sword, you know, like it could be used against a, a, any particular uh, targeted ethnic minority or religious uh, minority community, but it could also be used as an instrument of resistance by making sure that the flow of information uh, is maintained constantly through Facebook. And so they, the, the military shut down the Facebook, blocked the Facebook, and then people found a way uh, you know, the, the, because we're looking at a new generation that is, uh, you know, quite tech savvy that grew up with um, cell phones, right? They're not my generations, you know, in the 50s. Um, so they shut down the, uh, uh, they blocked the Facebook. And so people migrated to uh, Twitter and uh, uh, and some people use the VNP, you know, like something, uh, the uh, uh, application that allows yeah, you to bypass uh, the Facebook, and also there are, you know, international, uh, you know, hackers groups and others, you know, from around the world, and, you know, and also democratic uh, movements in Hong Kong, you know, Taiwan, Thailand, all of them came to the Burmese people's uh, solidarity and support, and so they were shared uh, tech, uh, technical tips about how to, how to get around these censorship, all that stuff, and so when that happened, the military was unable to, you know, stop the flow of the information so they had to resort to very crude methods like you know uh, shutting down entire internet systems right service providers and whatnot uh you know from say like one o'clock at night you know until nine o'clock in the morning you know and then also when when uh, so people will uh, work frantically towards one o'clock in the morning you're trying to you know, stay up late trying to get any uh, video clips uploaded, like pass on um, to con contacts around the world. The, then later, the military resorted to uh, cutting off mobile data services. So, so, in other words, unless you are sitting in your own home and uh, with the installed, physically installed internet service, you cannot, uh, you know, the, 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 the transmit any like uh, data packages that would have a uh, you know, video clips of a woman being shot dead on the street or a child being shot or like, you know, a protester being dragged away or a wounded person, you know, thrown onto the trucks along with the dead bodies, right? And so I think what's also important is like they, the military, you know, initially, obviously, um, would target um, established uh, private media outlets, right? Uh, you know, this, and then they all, you know, five or six um, major Burmese language, um, you know, outlets, they had to go underground. You know, their uh, editors and staff and uh, reporters, some of them get rounded up. I think like, I don't know, about like 40 journalists uh, behind bars. Uh, they're targeted because that they are seen as um, biased in favor of uh, democratization. 
and they're basically journalists are seen as like you know enemies of the state you know <laughs> journalists are always like they're one of the uh, the earliest uh, to be targeted for persecution right uh, under this kind of doji regime but what people uh, you know the, what the military underestimated was that we have an extremely high quote unquote like you know uh, penetration internet penetration uh, you know, like uh, we say, let's just say out of 50 million, uh, 35 or 40 million people have access to internet. So what we are looking at is that uh, 40 million, uh, you know, citizen journalists. In other words, uh, the uh, everyday average citizen turn their cameras into tools for resistance. They record everything. Yeah? Even when the internet services are not available. They videotape everything. As soon as the internet service comes back after 9 a.m. in the morning, or as soon as they get to a home or a cafe where there is a, a, a Wi-Fi, they upload them. Right. So, so the uh, UN Human Rights and Documentary uh, Documentation Offices and you know and, and other researchers. Um, gets bombarded with, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of uploads and, you know, video clips and files. So that's the scenario uh, right now, that the military cannot control the, um, the population. Every day there will be protest, you know, uh, every day there will be fighting. It may not be happening uh, concurrently or in a coordinated fashion. It's 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 been happening. They cannot put the genie back into the bottle. It's just not possible for for the Burmese public. Uh, they see this as an existential struggle. Uh, you know, in in, in the late um, you know February, uh, I think like on 26th of February, you know the the Burmese ambassador uh, at the United Nations, you know, uh, used his speech to call on the UN and other governments around the world not to recognize the coup you know and you know after the coup he he was the one who had to uh, the report to the generals and um, you know read out whatever script that the, the Burmese generals sent him to New York and then he he actually characterized the Burmese military as the existential threat to the country and the people, right? So, so this is what's happening. And like, you know, there also, we focused, uh, you know, so far on what the people in the country on the ground are doing, but also there are scores of Burmese diplomats, yeah, at, at different ranks, you know, first secretary, like uh, minister, counselors, uh, third secretaries, whoever, men and women in very important diplomatic posts, like in Geneva, New York, Washington, DC, uh, Berlin, you know, even in places like Egypt or Israel, the, the Burmese diplomats are joining what the, the public generally call as civil disobedience movement, which is aimed at crippling the state and depriving the military leaders and the military coup regime, a functioning state. So the military could issue and does issue orders, right? But they don't have administration, you know, that can, you know, implement the orders. And there's no police in the Burma. <laughs> Think about it. 
54 million people living with not a single police unit providing law and order, okay? maintaining law and order or going after criminals. But remarkably, the Burmese situation actually highlights the fact that when a society is you know, functionally enlightened, you don't need these security forces. The communities are policing their own communities and, and rich, this sounds like, a, you know, a, a, maybe a short-lived, a utopian uh, tale. But rich people are sharing what they have with the people who are protesting on the streets or boycotting, uh, you know, the military by not going to school or hospital. So if they don't, if they boycott, they cannot get salaries. If they can't have salaries, they can feed their families. So, so other people step in and feed families or boycott families. Yeah, and then so this is what is happening. You know, uh, the you know negative things are you know of course like people get killed and you know uh, people feel that uh, you know peaceful protest is not going to get them anywhere. Young people taking up arms. You know, leaving universities for guns. Um, you know, these are negative things, but, you know, this is a revolution. But at the same time, the, the positive thing is, you know, deeply divisive and racist society woke up to the fact that, you know, religious or ethnic differences or different skin colors, you know, we are brown, but, you know, there are different shades of brown. <laughs> so some people feel they're, 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 they're light brown and therefore they are more prestigious, that kind of, you know, crap. But anyway, uh, the... The, the, the people realize these, you know, uh, differences do not pose a threat to anybody, yeah? There are no traffic police officers on the street. There's no accidents, yeah? People are becoming more cooperative and kinder towards one another. I, I'm not making this up. You know, there's a, a new type of society that is emerging, you know, around the principles of social solidarity and, and uh, caring for one another. What I really, I, the sense that I get from everything that you just described is that there's a real momentum happening in Myanmar now where different forces that were completely separated are uniting. But this momentum sometimes is very easy to lose. And that's probably a concern for, for you and for your friends and for your colleagues. Um, of course, the thoughts are, that are running through my head are, you know, what can we do? How can we put this extra pressure? And how can we effectively put pressure from the outside on the Myanmar dictatorship to alleviate the suffering of the people and to make sure that this momentum persists? Yes, the, it takes a, a great stamina to keep a revolutionary movement going because it calls for massive personal sacrifices, you know, opportunities to learn, uh, opportunities to make money, uh, advance your own careers, everything's on hold, right? When a revolution takes place, it takes over everything. It is all consuming, uh, you know, process and act. And it, it demands, you know, like massive sacrifices from individuals, families and communities. And so, you know, it, 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 
it, uh, you know, and also you've got everybody has a mundane business of feeding families and looking after children and older family members, the parents and grandparents. And so, but what can be done from outside, you know, particularly like if you're in a, in a democratic country like the United Kingdom, right? Because uh, you've got your servants in the government and the parliament because they're there to serve the, uh, or to address the concerns of those who voted in, uh, you know, them. And then so I think that the, this coming, uh, the, uh, you know, next month in May, uh, the Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee is going to have, uh, I think, like a, a public hearing on uh, how well uh, the British government is doing uh, in Burma uh, with respect to the need to support uh, the democ democratic movement. And uh, I think like what, what really needs to happen is essentially the Burmese military ought to be designated as a non-state actor that, you know, despite the fact that it may be the very first terrorist group in the world with a Navy and an Air Force. Usually, by definition, terrorist groups and non-state actors do not have a Air Force or Navy. Yeah, that's one of the distinguishing factors, right, despite uh, different ways of uh, uh, killings of innocent people. Um, <clears throat> and so if Britain were to you know, recognize the uh, the alternative interim government known as national unity government is made of not simply of elected MPs who were never allowed to take their seats in the parliament, uh, but also representatives from women's groups, civil society groups, ethnic uh, minority communities. And so it's a fairly broad based sort of like a, uh, the representation, right, that that also enjoy overwhelming popularity with the Burmese public inside. So if the British government says, we're gonna recognize the interim government of Burma, known as National Unity Government, and we are going to allow that government to appoint a diplomatic representative to the United Kingdom while you know, asking the Burmese uh, military attache and the uh, you know chief of the mission who recently took over the Burmese embassy from the sitting uh, ambassador who's an ex-military officer uh, he fell out of favor with his you know old bosses or friends in Burma at the military regime when he issued a official statement you know saying that he's calls for the release of uh, you know detained politicians and officials in Burma right that's good and you know that's sinful enough in the eyes of the Burmese military uh, you know the one of their top ambassadors in the world in UK calling for the release of detainees yeah and he didn't even denounce the coup you know that all he needed to say was he wanted them free and you know the democratization should proceed and so he's been evicted from his uh, house and uh, he was locked out of the Burmese embassy um, in, in a, you know, in uh, near Hyde Park. Uh, the, I think that the British government could do more. It, you know, the, the most important thing uh, right now for British government without needing any type of parliamentary approval is to say that they will recognize the uh, democratically elected 
representatives as interim government and they would de-recognize the military representatives and send them home packing. And so, I mean, it, you know, like the Britain has put, uh, you know, the, the, about uh, a dozen or so uh, military officers at the top of the food chain uh, on its sanctions list. But the, these are things that, that the Burmese military expected. They expected, and they said it openly, that the Western governments and certain uh, multi uh, or like you know multilateral institutions such as uh, you know European Union would impose sanctions. That's exactly what they expected. And then you know, and then and those sanctions have been uh, you know imposed, and European Union extended uh, sanctions for one year. So you know, if the if that's what they expected, they are prepared. You know, what they would not be prepared is being chucked out of London, right? And then they, the, the, the military spokesperson would openly say, oh yeah, you know, they will impose sanction. But at the same time, they recognize us. You know, we have embassies. They do business with us still. And so, you know, put a more, another one is like, put a moratorium on any type of British interactions with the Burmese military. Yeah, and a military controlled parts of the state. I mean, like, you know, uh, Lana, the, the thing is that, you know, the European Union and British government financed the training of Burmese military officers and the Burmese police. And uh, they think that, you know, giving the these like, you know, uh, these armed gangs with a half century of history of, you know, slaughter and rape, uh, you know, some crash course in human rights and, and uh, you know, and democratization and constitutionalism uh, is going to make a difference. Well, they've been proven so wrong categorically. Yeah. And, and the, the very same troops and uh, the very same commanders and police officers whom British and European police forces and universities train are the ones who are doing all the killings and kidnapping, right? So obviously, you know, teaching wolves how to look after, uh, you know, chickens, uh, you know, uh, properly uh, the, uh, is definitely something never to be repeated by a country like Britain, right? So that, I think, you know, to, to, to sum it up, I think delegitimize the, uh, the Burmese representatives in London, and recognize the interim national unity government and put a moratorium on any type of institutional linkages with the military control state in Burma. You know, and not everything, I mean, like, you know, it, it's crippled, it's not functioning, but there are certain institutions that the military continues to control, like finance ministry. So there are like insurance companies from Britain that have insured uh, shipping and other businesses in Burma that are in the hands of the Burmese military. They say, we will no longer insure your aircrafts. Yeah, we will, if aircrafts are not insured, the Burmese planes are grounded and, and that kind of thing, that needs to happen. I hope that someone from the Foreign Office listens to this episode because in under 15 minutes, Zarni presented a far more effective way of toppling the military dictatorship in Burma than ineffective sanctions and strong condemnation. Given the scale of human rights abuses 
perpetrated by the Burmese dictatorship, I thought I would struggle to find anything positive in the story, but Zarni proved me wrong. There is something hopeful in the story of people coming together and ignoring their differences, even for a fleeting moment, in order to fight for their common freedom. I found it very inspiring. And 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 I think like the you know the the message uh, that the or the 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 belief that people in the country shares is that you know they have to fight for their own freedom by any means necessary, yeah. And they cannot look to the United States or United Kingdom, or they cannot look to the United Nations uh, to trigger this uh, you know so-called responsibility to protect. And uh, but it's, it cannot happen because Security Council is completely broken beyond reform. And and so therefore, you know, the, 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 I, mean, I would I, I would leave the conversation with with this thought that the you know the oppressed can only um, you know rely on themselves, you know, and, and no one else. No no one will come and deliver you from your oppression. You have to if you want Absolutely. freedom, you yeah. have to fight for yourself. You know, like it, it may be bloody, it may take decades, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. And so I never thought I would ever live to see uh, the day where I can begin to hope that, you know, the military may collapse towards the end. Since I recorded this interview, there's been a few developments in Myanmar. Time doesn't stand still. The National Unity Government that Zarni mentioned earlier has formed a People's Defense Force to combat violent attacks by the military junta. Young activists continue to pick up arms across the country. It's pretty clear now that this crisis will not be resolved anytime soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trouble with the Truth. Make sure to follow our podcast on your favorite platform and spread the word among your friends.